Welcome very much to our last Gospel in the City meeting of, uh, of the kind of before the summer break. It's great to see you. Uh, I take it none of you are um, voice hopefuls. Uh, if you are, you're in the wrong place. You want to be back across the Clayton. Uh, I see we're missing one or two faces that might normally be here. I suspect that's, um, that's where they are. So we'll look forward to seeing in a few months the judges turning around or not for some, for some of them. Uh, we've got quite a few things going on this lunchtime. It's our last session before before the break. Uh, we're going to be finishing off uh, Second Peter. We've got David uh, back speaking for us. He's been leading us through most of these sessions in, in Second Peter. We're, so we're delighted to have you back, David. And if we don't get time to say at the end, thank you very much for, for coming and ministering um, to us over these past few weeks. Um, we're also, we've got Andrew Wallace here from our friends at CMBC. Is that the right... Letters? CBMC. CBMC. <laughs> uh, so that's a kind of another group that's working with workers in Belfast. And Andrew's got a present for us, which is very kind of him. So he'll be saying a little bit about that later. Also, Stephen is not here at the minute. He's across at the Clayton, just making sure that anybody who's in the wrong place can, can redirect. Um, but that gives me a little opportunity to say that, that today is his last day. Uh, so we've got a little card for him and um, there'll be a present that we'll give him as well. Um, I don't know if anyone's got any good practical jokes they can think of while the, while, while the talk's going on, but it'd be great to kind of give him a good send-off, so uh, we'll, we'll do that at the end as well. But let's get, let's get straight in then with today's uh, passage. Um, we're finishing up 2 Peter, and we're, we've reached chapter 3, and we, we've been thinking about how Peter's helping Christians to think positively about their lives, uh, to, to see their lives as essentially being able to be holy, to reflect something of God's character, in their ordinary lives. And today we kind of see some of the big motivation for all of that. So here we go, 2 Peter chapter 3, you can find that on the, on the little handout there. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent 
to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let me pray briefly as we invite David up to speak to us. Our Father, we thank you for your many uh, blessings to us, and we thank you for your word that we heard so much about in that reading. And we pray now as David comes to uh, unpack it for us that you would help us to be trusting in your word and living in light of it until the day of your coming. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, really good to be with you again, and thanks to Sam and the guys for the invitation. Really appreciate being involved just in this work. Folk up in Shaftesbury pray for it regularly, uh, and it's, we see it as, as part just of Christian witness in the city centre. The task's too big for just one church, one denomination. We need each other. It's the same gospel, and we need to be supporting and praying for each other. So this is a good opportunity, uh, and I really uh, value it. Well, we come to the, uh, the last of our studies in Second Peter. Uh, and you know and I know one of the best ways to start a row among Christians uh, is to say, what do you think about the second coming? And stand back and watch what happens. Because we know, sadly, it's one subject that does divide Christians, different opinions, different views, uh, are you pre-mill, are you post-mill, are you a-mill, are you utterly confused? Maybe you don't think any of the mills really matters all that much. So many things that we could discuss and probably would divide us with different opinions. Uh, but that's not really what we want to be doing uh, today. Certainly, the return of Christ uh, is right there at the heart uh, of 2 Peter 3. Uh, but it's interesting that Peter's concern isn't to satisfy curiosity. In some ways, maybe he raises more questions than he answers. Uh, and plenty of things to think about in the light of the rest of Scripture. But Peter's concern here, as it has been all the way through the letters, basically pastoral. Uh, it's how is this great doctrine meant to impact on God's people? What kind of effect ought it to have on us? Uh, and it, strikes me, I think, often a lot of the, the speculations about the second coming and prophecy and so on, if we're not careful, they can become a cop-out. Because you can toss back and forward ideas about the second coming. What do you think about this verse and that verse? Without it ever actually touching your heart and life. Uh, but that's the concern of Peter uh, of the whole of the New Testament. What should be the impact on our Christian living and our Christian service? Uh, and that's his focus, and I hope that uh, will be our focus just for the short time we want to look at this chapter. 
So Speed Today is the title uh, that's been given. Uh, we'll come back to that because maybe it seems an odd expression, uh, as if somehow we can speed up the return of Christ. What does Peter mean? Well, hang in and we'll probably get to that uh, at some point. But just basically two things, really, uh, I think that we see in this chapter. The first, uh, the first 13 verses uh, are Peter's instructions. Uh, and he begins with the situation that his readers and really probably most of the readers of the New Testament had to face. A situation, as he says, that's been predicted. It's been predicted by the holy prophets and, he says, by uh, your apostles. And, of course, he's one of them. Conscious of that uh, unity, of course, of Old Testament and New Testament with the same focus uh, always on Christ and including his return. Uh, and what did the prophets and the apostles uh, warn about? Well, scoffers will come in the last days, he says in verse 3. Uh, the last days, well, when are the last days? You find Christians sometimes wondering, are we living in the last days? Or convinced that we are? What does the phrase mean in Scripture? That's the important thing. Uh, and it's pretty clear. If you turn, for example, to Hebrews 1 uh, and verse 2, talks about how God spoke to the fathers by the prophets in the past. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. In other words, the last days began with the first coming of Christ. Christians have been living in the last days since the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. So we are in the last days. Uh, and God's people have been for centuries. And so this is something that will characterize the whole period of the New Testament church, uh, the scoffers, uh, the mockers who come along to trouble God's people. Uh, and what in particular uh, is Peter thinking of? Because unbelievers scoff about a whole range of Christian truth, particularly here, where is the promise of his coming? They're coming to Christians saying, oh yeah, you, you people talk uh, about the Savior coming back again. Where? Come on, we've been going on for years like this and nothing's happened. It's not going to happen. Come on, be honest and admit you were wrong. And I think, well, surely that won't trouble Christians. But in the situation in the New Testament, there were Christians who were wobbling, shall we say, on this area. Because many of them had got the idea the Lord will come back in our lifetime. Now, that was a misunderstanding. But they were worried because if the Lord's coming back in our lifetime and Christians are beginning to die and they're gone, maybe we were wrong. Maybe the Lord isn't coming back again. Uh, maybe we've deceived ourselves. Maybe the whole thing really is just going to turn out to be an illusion. So they were vulnerable to scoffing and mocking uh, like this. The Lord hasn't come. Maybe he's not going to. And that was the sort of thing uh, that was being thrown in the faces of believers. Uh, and it's not unusual. We know, we know in our own experience, maybe you know it in your workplace, uh, there often is that kind of pattern of, uh, of really unspiritual mocking, we could call it. People who don't share our faith uh, and who will focus on what they see as the difficulties they can cause us. And it can grind away sometimes uh, at our faith and it can undermine what maybe once we were sure of. And then we start to think, well, I wonder, was I right? Have I got it wrong? And that characterizes all of the last days. 
Uh, it's no different in our day. That's how it's going to be until the Lord comes back again. So we need to be prepared for that and not be surprised. So how does Peter deal with it? Well, he answers with a couple of points, and we can really only take time to mention them. We don't have time to expand uh, on it. But what does he say? Well, first of all, verses uh, 5, 6, and 7, uh, he says, remember, things do not go on unchanged forever and ever. Amen. Uh, that was really the kind of objection that was being raised. Look, everything's going on exactly as it always did, and that's how it's going to go on. Peter says, hang on a minute. Uh, that's not true, actually. Uh, in the past, God did act in a powerful way in judgment in the flood. That's the example that Peter gives. And if God has done that before, he can do it again. Uh, the next time, it'll not be a flood, it'll be fire. But things don't go on unchanged. God can intervene as and when he wants to. He's done it before. He's going to do it again. So that's the first uh, answer uh, that Peter has. Second answer then is verses 8 and 9. Uh, and he's just reminding believers how foolish it is to, to think that God is subject to our timetables and our calendars. Uh, as if what was a long time for us and that was the sort of objection Christians were listening to. It's been ages. The Lord hasn't come back. In God's sight, it's only a blink. It's nothing. It's not ages. God doesn't measure time as we do. And the whole delay in the return of Christ, if you can call it that, well, Peter says it's for a reason. And the reason is to give opportunity for repentance and the bringing in uh, of God's people by grace. Uh, it's God's goodness that there is this period of time that to us seems a long period of time. To God, it's just a wee blink, but it's for the fulfillment of his great plan of salvation. So don't be upset, don't be worried, Peter's saying to the believers. And in his time, God is going to act. He's going to bring a cosmic renewal. I think that's the best way to describe it. And he mentions it there in verse 10. God is going to act in a dramatic in a powerful way. The heavens will pass away with a roar. Heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved. On your first reading, you might think, well, God is just going to wipe out the present creation. Just scrunch it up and throw it away. But that's not what Peter's saying. Uh, and that's not what the rest of the New Testament tells us. God is not going to dispose of the present creation as a sort of lost cause. He's going to renew it. It's going to be a renewed creation. That's particularly the word that's used of the new creation. Just as God renews us, when he saves us, he doesn't scrap us and bin us and create a new you as a Christian. He renews you. And that's what God's going to do with the whole creation. It's going to be renewed, refreshed. Uh, Paul writes about it in Romans 8. And there's a lot there uh, that's helpful about what God will do with the creation. But there, Paul talks in Romans 8, 21 about the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And Paul says there, when we enter into glory in our resurrection bodies, there'll be glory for the whole material creation as well. That's what God is going to do when Christ comes back again. The Lord saves us bodies as well as souls. The material isn't unimportant to God. And the material creation isn't unimportant to God. It's his creation Satan is not going to rob him of it. He will renew it. He will refresh it. It will be 
a renewed creation when Christ comes back again. And all the ravages of sin, when you think of the pollution and the damage and so on that sinners have caused in God's good creation, it'll all be removed and it will be a perfect home for his people. A place, as Peter says, in which righteousness dwells. And our minds can hardly take in what that'll mean. A world that is cleansed of all the damage of sin, all the ravages of the fall, perfect. It'll be Eden plus plus. It'll be even better than the original creation was. For one thing, it can never be lost again and never be damaged. The home of righteousness. And it'll be the end point, the consummation of God's work of redemption. So that's what God's going to do. That should reassure troubled Christians, wavering Christians. And it ought to have a present impact. And that's what Peter stresses. What sort of people should we be if we believe this? Verse 11, we should be living lives of holiness and godliness. In other words, these great truths about the return of Christ, the renewal of the creation, aren't provided for us to sit back and speculate and argue and toss to and fro in, a, in an abstract sort of way. They're meant to impact how we live today, tomorrow, the next day, as long as God leaves us in this world. We're to be living lives of holiness and godliness. The truth of Christ's return and everything that will take place should be a spur to sanctification. It shouldn't lead us to sit back idly and think, well, we just wait for the Lord to appear. It should really spur us to live for him, to seek holiness, to be good and faithful servants. And I think if it doesn't do that, we haven't really let this doctrine into our hearts and minds. It's just become a piece of theology. But that's not why it's been revealed to us. And Peter makes that clear. Waiting for this day. And the word he uses is a word for eagerly waiting. Looking forward, standing on tiptoes, watching for the arrival of the Lord and hastening the coming of the day. This is where we hit that odd idea of, of speeding the day, hastening the coming. And we wonder, does that mean somehow our efforts hurry God up in sending Christ back? Is there something we are doing that leads God to think, well, I can send Christ sooner. Well, no, of course not. We know the God of the Scriptures is a sovereign God. He has his timetable. And his decrees are being carried out exactly according to his timing. So we're not pushing God along. That's not what it means. And yet there's a real sense, Peter's telling us, uh, in which our holy living and our faithful service shorten the time of God's patience until all his people are brought in and the whole of his church is saved. Because our holy living and our faithful service are written into God's plan, just as our prayers are written into God's plan. We're not changing the Lord's mind. We're not hurrying him along quicker than he thought he would be going. But our witness, our service, our seeking Christ-likeness all of those are included in the plan of God. And they shorten the time that God has allotted for the bringing in of his church. I mean, it's amazing when you think of that, that what we are doing, imperfect, often very weak, 
isn't insignificant to the Lord. It's included in his plan and it's used by him to fulfill his purpose. That's amazing. That should really excite us and spur us. And that's Peter's point. If you believe these things, it should spur you to faithful service, to seeking holiness. So that's Peter's instructions. But then the rest of the chapter, secondly, is Peter's exhortations. Verses 14 to 18, Peter's exhortations. Uh, and he gives three of them. Uh, he must be a good Presbyterian. He's got three exhortations. And the first of them is an exhortation to prepare, to prepare. 14 and 15. A consequence, and we've touched on this, but Peter spells it out a bit more. A consequence of knowing that the Lord's going to return. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Think of standing before the returning Lord. What sort of person do you want to be and should you be? The desire to be without spot or blemish. And that's that desire for Christ-likeness. Because he's the one without spot or blemish. We want to be more like Christ. We long to be more like him. We're going to meet him face to face. Don't we want to be as like him as possible before that day comes? And there's no excuse for carelessness, for sitting back idly and waiting for God to zap holiness into us. That's not how it works. Hebrews 12, 14 uh, talks about our seeking the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's not saying our holiness earns salvation. Of course it doesn't. But it's saying that holiness that shows we're saved is crucial. It's vital. Uh, and we ought to be seeking it more and more. And at peace, at peace in what sense? Well, we are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't change. So at peace, at peace, I think, with other Christians. And I often does peace characterize Christians. Uh, often we're in tensions and disagreements. Uh, and so often Christians are, are more, it seems, interested in running each other down. Uh, and as if his failure somehow boosts me because I'm doing a wee bit better. At peace. If the Lord's coming back, if we're all going to be gathered before him, if we're going to see the Savior face to face, that should be a stimulus to seek peace among the Lord's people as far as we can. By God's grace, peace is not insignificant. And of course, it's based on the fact we've peace with God, and that enables us to be at peace with each other. So the return of Christ Ironically, you think often that promotes disagreement among Christians. Actually, it ought to be promoting peace and fellowship and looking forward together to the return of the Savior. Exhortation to prepare. Exhortation to learn, 15 and 16. Uh, we could talk a lot about this. We don't have the time. But Peter, just in a few words, gives us a fascinating insight uh, into the development of the New Testament. He refers to our beloved Paul, who also wrote to you. So Paul's alive. Paul is writing his letters. But look at how Peter describes them. He puts them on the same level as the other scriptures. That is tremendously significant. Already, before the apostles even were dead, it was recognized that what they were writing 
was God-breathed Scripture as much as the Old Testament was. And so it's perfectly right and proper that they form part of our Bible as believers. It's also reassuring, of course, that there's some things Peter found hard and Paul. Uh, that maybe excuses us sometimes in finding a few things in Paul difficult. But it's the scriptures that Paul is writing, and we believe Peter also is. God breathed scripture. Peter, Paul, the others are among the men carried along by the Holy Spirit, uh, as Peter says at the end of chapter 1. It's God's word, ultimately, rather than Paul's or Peter's. And we're to learn from the scriptures, from Paul, from the rest of the scriptures. We're not to be like the ignorant and the unstable. We're to be feeding on God's word, nourishing our souls with these wonderful doctrines, building ourselves up in holiness and Christ-likeness. So there's an exhortation to prepare, an exhortation to learn, and finally an exhortation to grow. Verses 17 and 18. Now these aren't separate, three separate things. They're all interconnected, of course. As we're learning, we ought to be growing. But it's worth separating them out. And at the very end of the letter, don't you see Peter's pastoral concern for his readers? That really stands out. Negatively, first of all, he warns them, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people. We thought uh, a bit in chapter 2 about the kind of false teaching uh, that was prevalent and troubling the church. So be on your guard. Keep awake. Test what you hear. Don't be carried away by false teaching uh, because error can make subtle inroads uh, if we become careless. So there's, there's no place for uh, complacency as Christians. On the alert, on our guard, so that we're not taken unawares. And of course, the, the key way to do that is to be rooted in the Scriptures, a strong devotional life, feeding on the Word, praying, just the basics of Christian living. There's no new recipe, there's no shortcut. The basics, the disciplines of living for the Lord, and that will protect us. And then the positive side, as he finishes off, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. If we firm roots in the Word, in the Scriptures, the God-breathed Word, and as we use the means of grace, we study the Bible, we pray alone and families together, uh, we meet for worship, we meet for fellowship, then the Word will spring up, it will bear fruit, we will grow, we will become more like Christ, we'll be more and more prepared for the day of His return. Of course, as always, we're reminded knowing the truth has to lead to doing it. We're not simply filling our minds with a stock of information. I mean, I've come across uh, Christians uh, and their heads are full of theology and they maybe have shelves of books. I have no room to talk, but never mind. Shelves of books and they can tell you, well, he thinks this and I prefer him and I think he's better in this subject. And it sounds impressive. And then when you know them a little better, you discover in terms of their local church, they're doing nothing. They'll sit with their nose in a theology book, but they'll not get out and witness. They'll not get out and serve the Lord. And I can, I've kind of come to a point, to be truthful, if somebody 
talks a lot about the theologians they've read and the preachers they've heard. My heart sinks. And that's the reason. Because there's so many who can talk a good game and kick about the names of the theologians and the preachers. But in Christian service, they're useless. So we need to be aware. Preachers need to be aware, of course. Very easy to close the door in the study and you enjoy all the, the study and the theology. It's great, but is it changing our lives to be more like Christ? Is it pushing us out into the world to be useful servants? That's the big challenge. And the focus, the very end, on Christ. The glory is his. And the glory will be his. And he won't give it to anybody else. He'll not give it to us. He'll not give it to denomination It'll be his. And in the end, that's what we want, isn't it? That he'll have the glory. And he will appear and all that reigns. And we'll share it. That, that's amazing. We'll share that glory. But it'll be his glory. And he'll have all the praise in the new creation throughout eternity. It really is true for Christians. I often say this uh, to my own folk. The best really is yet to come. There are so many blessings in the Christian life that we do have. But there's imperfection, there's sin that still remains, there are struggles, there are sorrows, there are hard times. The best is still to come. And the Lord will return, we will be like him, we'll see him as he is. And in the new creation we will be holy, we will be faithful servants. And he'll have all the praise and all the glory. And I can hardly imagine what that's going to be like. Just make sure you're there. Make sure you belong to him when that day comes. Let's just pray briefly. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. May they not be just in our heads. May they not be abstract theology. May they touch us, change us, transform us more into the likeness of Christ that we will be ready for that great day. May we look forward to it and may we seek holiness and Christ-likeness for his name's sake. Amen.